Hello and welcome. You're listening again to Lore and Legend with your hosts Rick Scott and Sebastian O'Dell. And every week we bring you a legendary tale inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. This series of Lore and Legend is Strange Britannia, exploring dark and lesser known tales of the British overworld and its hidden beings. In this episode, a strange sight on their journey causes the elfin queen to tell Thomas the tale of a young girl who embarks upon the path less travelled, and doing so places her heart in jeopardy. This is the tale of Cherry of Zena. And we rode and rode, and hard we rode, we rode for many a night and day, until we came to a crystal river that in our path did lay. What river is this? Oh, said I. Oh, please to me do say. This is a river of tears, she said, that is spilled on earth this day. And the elfin queen told Thomas a tale of woe and heartbreak that came of dealings between the hidden folk and of men. Our tale begins on the north coast of Cornwall, in a little village called Zena. In the village of Zena, there lived a poor farming family, a husband and wife, who had thirteen children. But with thirteen children to provide for, all of them had learned not to expect very much. All of them, that is, except one. Their daughter Cherry was a willful girl and would not accept the life of poverty and drudgery that awaited her siblings in Zena. When she turned 16, she abruptly announced that she was leaving home, that she would seek work as a servant. Her mother tried to convince her otherwise to stay nearby, maybe settle down with a nice young man from the neighbouring village of Toadnak. Cherry refused, stating plainly that Toadnak was a dull place full of dull people. Instead, she would head south, over the hills they call the Lady Downs. And in this way, she set off into the world to make her fortune. As she went, she neglected to remember only three things. Firstly, that she had no idea where to find the sorts of people who might want to employ her. Secondly, that she'd never seen a map, much less been able to read one. And thirdly, that she had never set foot on the Lady Downs before in her life. And so, as you might imagine, our heroine was soon very lost. She had taken turn after turn, but she found no houses, and all day she passed not one person to ask for directions. She thought that perhaps she should give up and just go home, but she no longer even knew which direction home was. She came to a crossroads. She could go straight on, she could turn left, she could turn right, but she didn't know what lay down in any of those directions. And so instead, she stopped here. She sat down alone at the crossroads, and she began to cry. No sooner had she done so than there was a man beside her, and his voice called out to her, My dear young maiden, whatever grieves you so? When she opened her eyes, she saw the man stood beside her. His presence startled her, but she was quickly drawn in by his appearance. 
which was elegant in every manner, from his delicately arranged hair to his fine clothes and shoes. He looked concerned, and she was touched that such a gentleman would attend to her. Well, she sniffed, I, I came here looking for a job as a servant, but, but I'm lost now, and I don't even know how to get home. What a marvellous stroke of good fortune, the man replied, for you have come upon the down-seeking work, and I have come here to find a servant. You see, my current servant is old and very frail. She must soon leave us, and I still need someone to look after my little boy. His voice was enchanting to listen to, rich and soft and a little mysterious. He went on, You would do me a great favour by accompanying me to my home and taking on old Prudence's tasks. Now Cherry, who had in a matter of seconds gone from despair to success, did not pause to wonder why she had not seen this man before he appeared next to her. She did not ask him where his home was. She agreed straight away, and she accompanied him as they set off from the crossroads, taking the path that led on through the trees, seeming to run downhill for quite a long time, even though the lady downs are not particularly tall. As they walked on and on, the path became ever more winding, and the trees around drew closer and closer in, until the light from the sun was cut out entirely by the canopy above. It was at this stage, when it was getting altogether too dark to see, that her new master stopped her in her tracks. He pointed down, and she looked to see that she had nearly stepped directly into a wide river. And then, in a move that you or I might regard as somewhat presumptuous, the gentleman scooped her up into his arms and carried her across the river. Now, if Cherry was affronted by his behaviour, she seems to have hidden it well. In fact, she seemed so taken by this chivalrous act that she didn't pause to wonder how he was quite so easily carrying her across the water. Instead, it wasn't until she was set down on the bank on the other side that she paused to look around again. And on this side, she found that she could now see much better. The path carried on downhill, but only for a short distance before it met a stone wall with a little gate in it. Through the gate and down a little way stood a house, which was the most beautiful house Cherry had ever set eyes on. It was made of stone and surrounded on both sides by fruit trees and blossoming flowers. Cherry could already smell their fragrance. As her new master led her on down to his home, it became lighter and lighter as if the canopy of trees had cleared to reveal a bright sunny day. There was, however, no break in the tree line. Instead, the light was coming from the garden itself. Around the house lay hundreds, possibly even thousands, of little lamps that all together gave the illusion of bright sunlight. They entered through the gate, and the birds were all singing in the trees. It sounded like the chorus of heaven itself, and Cherry felt that she had come home. But not everything here was quite so wonderful. Cherry met the old housekeeper, Prudence, an old woman who walked around hunched over and looked at Cherry with suspicion. 
She was asked to show Cherry her duties, and she did as she was bidden, but she barely looked up at her charge as she did so, and she certainly never smiled. From Prudence, Cherry learned their master was named Robin, and that Prudence had worked in his house for many years. She was clearly unhappy passing her tasks on, and Cherry often thought she heard the old woman muttering something about a fool from Zena. But Cherry didn't catch the rest. She didn't like Prudence very much, and she was grateful when she remembered that the old woman would not be living here long. Prudence showed her how to take care of Robin's son, which was the most important of her duties. Each morning she would get the boy up and feed him his meals. Once breakfast was done, before he ran off into the garden to play, she had to sit him down and place two drops of a special ointment into his eyes. His eyes were easily his most distinctive feature, being both large and bulbous, and also piercing, worsened by the fact that he never blinked. He would seem to stare straight through Cherry every time she knelt down to apply his ointment. Once it had been applied, though, he would no longer stare vacantly forward, but would look around with a newfound sense of curiosity and enthusiasm, and would suddenly rush off outside. When Robin showed her the ointment, he instructed her to never, under any circumstances, drop any of the ointment into her own eyes. It was the only direct instruction he had ever given her. Cherry liked to be around the house and in the garden, but there was something out there that was slightly disturbing to her. There was a set of statues, statues that looked mostly humanoid, but lacked any distinguishing facial features, and were all crudely misshapen. Some of them were lacking arms, some legs, some even had no heads. Though she did not like to look at them, for she strangely felt as though they looked at her in an accusatory fashion, despite the fact that they, they were stone and could not look at all. Cherry reminded herself that there was no accounting for the tastes of the wealthy, and she ignored them as best she could. The rest of the place was so unfailingly beautiful, she could bear the slight creeping feeling in her skin when she looked upon the stone people. Cherry liked most of all to spend time with her new master, Robin. He was handsome and elegant, and always so kind to her. He was away during the day while she carried out her tasks, though he would sometimes join her in the garden in the evenings, and walk with her to tell her about all of the wonderful trees and flowers that grew there. When she was done working, he would walk her around the house, and they would sit listening to the river flow together, and he would rest his hand upon hers. She didn't feel like his servant at these times. She felt special and precious to him. She looked forward to the time when Prudence finally moved out of the house and she could live out this perfect life with Robin and his admittedly slightly creepy son. Finally, one evening after she had been pruning the trees, Robin took her in his arms. She looked up into his eyes, and then he kissed her softly on the lips. Cherry, in that moment, felt more perfect than she had ever imagined. The next day, Prudence awoke her early in the morning and insisted that Cherry accompany her. Cherry reluctantly got up and followed, 
only to find that Prudence was leading her down the hall towards Robin's private room. It made her nervous. She didn't know if she should be coming down this way. And what made it worse was that when they arrived at his door, Prudence ordered Cherry to kneel down upon the floor and look through the keyhole. Cherry refused immediately, for it would be a grave insolence for a servant to spy on her master so. Prudence shook her head impatiently. I've shown you many things since you came here, and I have only one more thing to show you. Cherry supposed that if it might make the old lady leave sooner, she must accept and bear the impropriety of her task just this once. She knelt down on the cold tiles of the floor and put her eye to the lock. Then the door swung open, clouted Cherry upon the forehead, and she fell unconscious. When she awoke, she was in the kitchen, and Robin was trying to bring her round with a sort of syrupy cordial drink. It made the throbbing in her head go down, but she was having some trouble remembering exactly what had happened before she had passed out. She'd been going down the hall with Prudence towards Robin's room, but that everything seemed rather hazy after that. Robin informed her that Prudence had disobeyed him in a very serious way, and that she had been made to leave that place immediately. So despite the confusion, Cherry now had everything that she had wanted. She looked after the child, and it brought her joy to watch him transform so happily by the ointment she gave him. She would walk and talk with Robin, and sometimes they would share another kiss. And other than the few duties she had around the house, she spent her day wandering through the trees and watching the river run. The stone figures were still there, and looking at them still made her feel uneasy. She thought, when she looked, at them now, that there might be a new one among them, possibly a little hunched over. But she did her best not to look at them, so she couldn't quite be sure. In any case, the days now were perfect, lacking in nothing. She didn't mark the passing of the days or the weeks, much less months or years. She never awaited anything in the future, and she never looked back anxiously at anything in the past. Life became just a blissful blur. But human beings are rarely content for long. When Cherry was first given the instruction to never place any of the ointment into her own eyes, it seemed absurd. Her eyes worked perfectly fine. Why should she want to place medicine into them? But as she went on and as she applied the ointment to the young boy, she noticed what a change it brought about in him, and it did make her wonder what it might be like to try it out herself. Of course, it was a foolish notion, and the small inconvenience of not finding out what might happen if she applied it to her own eyes was a tiny price to pay for the wonderful privilege of getting to live here. But as we all know, 
when you try to put a foolish notion from your mind, there's nothing that can keep it away. It only comes back all the stronger. And Cherry was soon fighting to keep the notion from being on the forefront of her mind at any given moment. That blissful blur that she had been living in was suddenly disrupted. And soon she felt like she could only really be happy if she finally sated her curiosity, just enough to quiet the thoughts in her mind. And then she would never have to disobey Robin again. And so, one day, after she had given the boy his ointment and he had rushed off to play in the garden, she took it and she dropped two drops into her own eyes. No sooner had she done so than she immediately understood why she should not place the ointment in her own eyes. It hurt like the blazes. She had to do something to get this ointment out of her eyes as soon as she possibly could. And so she stumbled her way down to the banks of the river. And she knelt there and she scooped water into her hands and splashed as much of it as she could into her eyes. Gradually, rubbing the water into her eyes, trying to rub the ointment out, the pain lessened a little and she could open her eyes and look around once more. And it was as she opened her eyes that she saw the most fantastical sight that she had ever seen. In the water, not 30 yards from where she was now, there was a group of people dancing around in a set, spinning from one partner to another. No, not in the water, on the water. And not even that. These folk were frolicking around just an inch or two above the water's surface. Cherry had never seen anything quite like it in all her life. She did, however, know enough stories to know that she was witnessing the dances of the fair people. These were the other folk, the hidden folk, and very few people ever got the privilege to see them. So she watched in trance. Strangely enough, as she watched, she thought that one of the dancers looked familiar. Like all his companions, he was elegantly dressed and handsome. But when she stared at him alone, she realized that she did know him. It was Robin. Her master was spinning around, floating an inch or two above the surface of the water. When the dance was finally done, he took his partner in his arms, and Cherry saw him kiss her on the lips. She was shocked by the whole scene, but now she was broken. Everything about her life here was a lie. The perfect world she had had with Robin and his son was over. She rose from the water and walked numbly back to the house. She carried out the rest of her tasks without a sound, even when Robin returned home. He came into the garden, but she ignored him. When he went to kiss her, she slapped his face and told him to go and kiss the other folk she had seen him dancing with. Robin's face darkened. You have disobeyed me. I gave you only one rule, to never use that ointment upon yourself, and now I see that you have lied to me. Cherry had been so angry that she had forgotten that she was still Robin's servant, and now she feared what her master might do with his knowledge. 
But he looked at her very sadly and said, You cannot stay here any longer. You must go away and you may never return for the rest of your born days. And without a chance to collect her things or to say farewell to the boy, Cherry was dragged from that place. Robin took her over the water, back up the path, uphill, further up, until they were back on the Lady Downs at the crossroads once more. He cast her out of the forest, and there he left her. She looked around. She could go straight on. She could go left. She could go right. But she could not go back the way she had come, for that path was now gone. No way led back through the trees. It is not known how long Cherry sat here. We do know that she was eventually found, because at some point she returned home to Zena. Though her parents were overjoyed to see her again, Cherry did not share in their joy. From that day forth, Cherry did not share in any joys of the earth. And when the nights fell, she would wander around the Lady Downs endlessly, searching for that path that she could never find, searching for that way back into the kingdom she was banished from, a world that was lost to her forever. Seven years they went and passed, and I on earth was never seen, and was told to never speak these things that I had seen. So, tell me about what attracted you to this tale of Cherry of Zena. I think because it kind of bears a lot of hallmarks of um, lots of different superstitions and stories about fairies from the past in Britain and and kind of gives you a slight sort of back room view of them, a sort of behind the scenes look at a lot of um, uh, fairy stories. So you get that uh, agreement made with the fairy Unbeknownst to you, you are dealing with one of the other folk who have their own purposes, and Robin asks Cherry if she will come to his house and be his servant. So she's agreed to journey into the land of fairy. There's a suggestion in a number of tales that you know you you have to agree, you have to strike a bargain before the the fairies hold their power over you, and. It's not explicitly brought up, but she does agree to it. But then you get, again, you get these liminal spaces. So Cherry collapses or is is crying by a crossroads, which is where Robin appears out of nowhere. They cross a river down in the Greenwood, 
uh, to get to his house and you didn't see the house before then. So you have this sense that you have entered a new space when the river is crossed. You, you, could, all, you could be forgiven for thinking maybe she just wasn't paying attention. It was dark. She wasn't looking. You also get, and this, this is from the, 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 the versions of the story that I've read, they go downhill quite a long way, further than she thinks that the hills really do go down. So you get this, again, this sense that you've gone underground, despite the fact that it's still light, as though it were day, um, when they arrive. Um, so you get a lot of subtle hints as to what's going on, but you don't actually get told and, and, until a bit later on. The, the other things I was going to say is attentive and knowledgeable listeners will have noticed that the uh, fairy's name is Robin, uh, which is almost certainly a reference to Robin Goodfellow, the sort of hobgoblin character who's a sort of trickster fairy. And you're told that he goes off in the middle of the day and she doesn't know where he is and then he comes back in uh, in the evening, which is you know fairly standard behaviour for human relationships at the time. But there's a, almost a suggestion that probably he's out playing tricks that's not an aspect that we see in that tale of Robin. I suppose, in a sense, it almost reminds me, uh, now that you mention it, a little bit of uh, the character of Mr. Fox. He is a, a ruffian in gentleman's clothing. Mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or a, a jester or sprite in gentleman's clothing in this instance. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing, because if he if he is a Robin Goodfellow in, the old, in, in, in that sense of it, he is that kind of... Uh, mischievous scamp but he does come across as this incredibly charming um, and and fair-mannered man and it sort of gives you the sense of that mischievous character in more you know is capable of playing a role that is more um, urbane than you would otherwise give a, a creature like that credit for but then you know it goes on you get this child whose strange large piercing eyes match the descriptions of uh changeling children that um uh, was swapped with uh people's own children um the there's the stone people and you don't get told who they are or where they've come from but there is a suggestion that you know, these are actual people that have somehow horrifyingly become stranded here, turned to stone. Um, and again, that sort of happens in the background. It happens in the background to this kind of this story, this, this lovely paradise that this woman is living in. And um, it, it does, it has that sort of, the, the narration follows the innocence of the character. You know, she she's come to a paradise. It's a wonderful world. Why should, would she ever want to leave it? But you keep getting these reminders of what that world is actually like. Um, and of course, the other hallmark that it bears is the uh, fairy ointment that grants second sight to the uh, to the user. So there's a sense in which this is uh, an archetypical fairy tale. Mm. Yeah, it brings up a lot of the symbols and movements you would expect to see within a fairy story without necessarily being, without, without focusing 
very much on them. They become part of the background as to what's going on, which I think is quite satisfying in a way. One of the things about Cherry of Zena is the the things that you don't get told. You know, you get these stone figures. Some of them are missing bits of their bodies. The Lord is kissing them. You see that relationship between him kissing her and him kissing the stone people. You get these kind of strange... Because they're humanoid stone creatures. Um, so you get this idea that there are people... Uh, and, and, you know, they're dancing around, so they are in some way still living, um, but they've sort of been reduced to something horrible and are being kept here. And that's the... Um, it's the kind of uh, other side of the coin, the dark side of the coin to, to the idyllic life that she has here, that seemingly for now she has this beautiful and wonderful existence but someday she might become a horrible stone figurine that has to just strangely dance around a room which seems to have happened to lots of other people i think the story is nicely layered with a sense of threat because even because like i say that it's the creepiness of the creepy child and then yes the when you when you told it the first time the story forge um missing the the part where she falls in love with him um uh once you work that back in mm. because um it's creepy to us in i think a very other relevant sense uh master and servant mm. uh she's a young girl how, how young is she in the story? uh she is 16 um in yeah. it's in her 16th birthday that she leaves home there's a um, there's actually a very pleasing thing about this story, which I will work in when I properly tell it, which is that um, in 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 the story, her mother wants her to to marry a, a young or she wants her to go to Tuadnak, I think it's pronounced, um, and marry a young boy from there, and uh, she refuses on the grounds that she 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 describes these things that probably won't make very much doesn't make very much sense in a modern context but essentially equate to the idea that Tuadnak is a dull and stupid place. Um, and what's satisfying about this is that there is a version of this story from Tuadnak. Right. So, so instead of being from Zena, it's from Tuadnak. Um, but it's much more boring. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she goes away, she works as a servant, everything goes well, she promises to be away for she promises to be there for a year and a day and a year and a day passes very quickly and then she goes home and yes uh, you know a, a year and a day passed rather rather rapidly and she wasn't expecting it to but there's no she doesn't get thrown out of the house there's no stone figures there's you know she goes she comes back and then some people worry about her because she's a bit odd now <laughs> and you you know it's, it's quite it's, it's somewhat satisfying because you, you you read this and you think Maybe she's right. Maybe Tordnack is a dull place. <laughs> maybe she's right, or maybe the storyteller heard it in Tordnack. This, this needs some work. <laughs> I'm not having it about any of those people from Tordnack. <laughs> we'll set it in our very own Zena. But yeah, uh, so... Apologies if you're from Tordnack. <laughs> <laughs> we mean nothing by it. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a whole kind of like, what we, like, a, in an appropriate relationship, so there'd be a looming sense of threat from that. And yeah. You should probably just, like, sort of kind of work on why she's attracted to him as well. Mm. What, what are the... 
what are the, what is the pull for her? Yeah, I I so I think yeah, making something of that is probably a good idea because one of the things is she's trying to get away from the poverty that her family live in, and you know suggesting that she go to Toadnak is she's going to meet other people who are quite similar in social status to herself. When she meets him on the downs, he's charming, he's elegant, he's a gentleman. She's, you know, she's captivated by his his wealth and status, I think is one of the things that's being suggested. Um, but yeah, I think I think playing up quite how charming he is, is is probably a good idea. I think it's actually one of the things that I find slightly disappointing in the story is that... Um, because you do have that sense of threat, when she disobeys, instead of something terrible happening, as you as your kind of your mind is already kind of imagining, he just sort of throws her out. Mm-hmm. Um, your so the question becomes then as well: Why doesn't she end up as a stone figure? Mm. Like it seems as though, and 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 maybe this is it's it's almost a subversion she dodges a bullet by disobeying him. She's thrown out. Well, I mean, you say she dodges a bullet. She then leads the rest of her life <laughs> wandering the moors helplessly. Um, but she doesn't live there and eventually get turned into a stone figure. She, you know, she doesn't get... Or she doesn't live there until she becomes old and then gets thrown out for a younger model. I think. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, because you could if you wanted to, uh, you know, as a storyteller, if you decide that there, that needs an explanation, could add something in, you know, uh, maybe, um, you know, sometimes in these tales, somebody else in the house helps them escape or something, so maybe the kid, the child or something, mm. um, but, you know, that's up to you whether you, whether you feel it's really necessary and uh, and how much you want to depart from the original text. Yeah. Um, I often shamelessly depart from the original text. <laughs> I, I think I've been trying to rein myself in lately because I too often, I, I too often read a story and go, that's a great story, but it had a very disappointing end. I'm going to rewrite the ending. <laughs> and you think, you know, you can do that a bit, but you want to preserve the story in terms of uh, what its themes actually are and such that people kind of have a familiarity with how that tale runs as opposed to all of these things happen and then something totally different <laughs> happens. Such that, yeah. There's this time and place for that. Just not every single time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I um, In another detail which is probably a good thing to i think telling the story gave me an appreciation of some of the elements in it which are actually quite relevant so the um the ointment rubbed on the boy's eyes uh where it says you know she felt like he could see more after the ointment was rubbed on his eyes the um there's a bit where she has to milk the cow that's one of her chores and uh she doesn't see a cow and she can't see a cow anywhere. Um, and then the boy, you know, she's she's tended to the boy. She's she's given him his ointment, and he's going. Well, the cows, oh, just call the cow over. And she's like, I don't. There's no cow around. And eventually, he convinces her, and she calls it. And then all of a sudden, it's just there in front of her. Um, 
or, or maybe you know it, it comes you know, I, I can't remember exactly how it happens but it's yeah there's there's this suggestion that he has the sight to see the cow before she is able to the fairy ointment is quite an important element in this story um it's one that uh you know, i mentioned in a previous episode it was something that i kind of dropped from the telling of child roland uh, but it appears there uh, and in a lot of other stories about the hidden folk so mm-hmm. what what's the significance of that so it was a popular um superstition that there was a salve that you could apply to your eyes particularly in scottish folklore um but seemingly also in, in English folklore as well, um, that the, the the fair folk procured, well, produced, the fair folk produced this ointment and that when you applied it to your eyes, you could see them. It crops up very frequently in stories of human women looking after or otherwise tending to fairy children. So um, the fairy midwife is the is the classic tale, and it frequently involves them being given the second sight, and so long as they never re- reveal that they have it, all is well. But as soon as they open their uh, overly talkative human mouths, um, consequences ensue, and frequently they get blinded or lose the sight in that eye. Um, the it's interesting the first story that involves a woman being taken away to look after the child of a fairy is actually from the 13th century and it was uh, collected recounted by a guy called um, Gervais of Tilbury he was the the marshal of a uh, French kingdom called Arles Arles. and uh, in that it's it's a woman in the river who's uh, drawn into the river and then taken prisoner, as it were. And it's uh, eel fat that gets rubbed into her eyes. And at that point, she gains the ability to see the other folk as they are. And up until then, I'd seen them as, I think it was a wooden bowl that she she followed, which actually turned out to to be the the, the fairy who then took took power over her. Um, So yeah, this, this motif of something that you have to put into your eyes to, to grant you the sight is, is is a very common one. In in Child Roland it's described as a a red liqueur, um sort of very reminiscent of blood. And in and in that the fairy ointment isn't about seeing it, in fact brings um brings people back to life essentially or mm. or helps to break the enchantments. Um, that have been laid on them so um, perhaps that's a slightly uh, expanded role for fairy ointment um, in uh, in that particular tale um, but it is nonetheless a, a recurring theme yeah um, I've seen uh, I've seen it described as oil um, and I suppose the other thing about it in Child Roland is that the burial mound that they're in seems to reach into the roots of the earth. Yeah. And uh, there's, I don't know, there's almost a suggestion that whatever this, this liquid is, you know, that there's something primal and elemental about it, that it is involved with giving life. Um, yes. Yeah. A final reason for me wanting to tell that tale um, 
is the sense of loss at the wonderful world that she can never return to, but also the then attendant banality of ordinary existence. And I think in some ways that's a thing that that that's kind of relatable for for many people, not not that in, entirely, but that sense of when something wonderful has gone away, everything else sort of looks drab and plain. It's that losing yourself through that endless quest for the world that seems magical and wonderful, such that you can't appreciate any of the ordinary joys of human existence. It's kind of cautionary in that way. Something about the sublime, ordinary is never good enough anymore. You can sort of see kind of echoes of that motivation in terms of uh, 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 very heavy drug use and things like that. Sort of drawing towards that world that seems perfect and wonderful, as opposed to sticking around and in the in the in the boring pedestrian world that you live in. That enchantment, it's an illusion, it's a deception that you practice on yourself yeah. as well. You want to live in the fantasy. Mm. You want that to be the reality is you want that to be reality so you'll ignore all the other elements around it there is a, a, a Christian addition to these sort of quite pagan beliefs about the sight of the, the other people um, that when you're granted partial sight you see this beautiful and wonderful and divine you know paradise a world of paradise as essentially Um but then if you're granted full sight, I think sometimes it's sight in one eye and then sight in the other, then everything does look ugly and hideous and filled with sin and uh, degeneracy that eventually switches you off it. But you're seduced by that first blush of, 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 of wonderful and, and perfect and you never want to believe that it's anything other. And I think that in, 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 in that that kind of motivation, wanting to live in the fantasy, is I think what most draws me to Cherry of Lena. Next week, at last, the dragons are coming. Join us for a gruesome legend from the north of England, the Laidly Worm of Spindleston Hugh. You've been listening to Lauren Legend Episode 6, Cherry of Zena. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Sebastian O'Dell. Music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentel. Additional music and sound effects were sourced from freesound.org and freemusicarchive.org. You can find a full list of audio credits on our website. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, uh, there are a number of ways that you can support us here at Law and Legend. We're committed to keeping the episodes in the series free of adverts. 
If you don't want to listen to any ads at all, uh, please consider supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon. You can find that at www.patreon.com forward slash law and legend. Financial support enables us to keep on telling our stories and will empower us to develop more creative content for you, our listeners in the future. If you can't afford to support us regularly but want to drop a few coins in the hat, you can do so using our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash law and legend. And you can find all of those links on our website.